Are you a true crime advocate? Are you passionate about uncovering the truth and bringing justice to victims? Do you love the paranormal and spooky tales? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you won't want to miss the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival in Austin, Texas, this August from the 25th to the 27th. This festival features panel discussions, workshops, and live podcasts focusing on ethics and advocacy in the true crime sphere. Get your tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com and join us in Austin for an unforgettable experience. I thought you were going to talk to me about mesothelioma for a second. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Dang, I have a deep voice when I want to. Hello. Hello. I'm Kenna. I'm Koel. And that was not my stage voice. <laughs> my customer service voice. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. The regular Diagnosing a Killer, D-A-K reg. Yeah. On the reg. Oh, this case is so fucking wild. Is it? Yes. I'm I don't excited. think we have, like, any business to take care of. Not really. Um, other than just shouting out, of course, our social media. If you guys want to follow us, we have every social media platform at Diagnosing a Killer. We have a email set up at diagnosingakiller at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you guys. We've been getting a lot of suggestions. I've been writing them down and keeping a little notebook full of suggestions. So we're going to get to them all. Check out diagnosingakiller.com. Yeah. There you are able to access tickets for the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival. So really great things coming up with that. Yeah, if you go to that website, uh, I think it's truecrimepodcastfestival.com, you can check out their content. You can check out all the podcasts that are going to be there. There's a lot of really great names that are going to be at that festival. Our little logo is on there, and if you click on that, it actually takes you right to our website anyway. So two birds. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's super exciting. Yeah. Can't wait to, to do that. We were talking about the panel in our last episode, I think, about how we're both like kind of nervous if we be if we do get chosen for a panel. like We have to take like some shots or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, super excited to tell you this story. I know this is one that you don't know, and if you do, you're going to really surprise me, because okay. I had never heard about this. I wanted to do something, like, super different than, I know we always say that, but super different than we've done MO-wise and just kind of, like, all-together uh, scenario situation-wise. Mm -hmm. So, I landed on a little fella named John Jack Gilbert Graham. His so name he, is my name, too. LOL. <laughs> so he does go by Jack. That's what we're going to call him. Jack. Jack. All right. Let's start on this little number here. On November 1st, 1955, Daisy King boarded United Airlines flight 629 en route from Stapleton Airport in Denver, Colorado to Portland, Oregon. The plane was to eventually land in Seattle, Washington, where Daisy would then change planes and travel to Alaska to visit her daughter. The plane took off at 6.52 p.m., and just 11 minutes later, a tremendous explosion occurred in the cargo department of the plane, cleanly severing its tail section and causing a flare to separate and ignite. A secondary explosion occurred when the plane's engine and forward compartment hit the ground, instantly killing the 39 passengers and five crew members aboard, 44 people in total. The plane crashed on a sugar beet farm near Longmont, Colorado. Upon hearing the news, the FBI immediately offered its services in identifying the victims of the seemingly accidental tragedy. Although, as the bodies were recovered, and investigators sifted through the evidence and stories of the victims, the scenario was beginning to seem a bit fishy. While the days went by and their investigation became more detailed, the uneasy feeling became too big to ignore and the FBI was forced to face the truth. This plane crash was indeed not accidental, and in reality, a bomb had been placed purposefully into one passenger's luggage, Daisy King. Ooh. Ooh, heebies. In order to fully understand why this bomb was put onto this plane to detonate on purpose, we need to learn who would have wanted to cause harm to Daisy King. 
Dun dun dun! <laughs> wow. John Jack Gilbert Graham was born on January 23rd, 1932, in Denver, Colorado, to Daisy William Graham. What? Daisy herself was raised in a seemingly normal middle to upper class family. Her father was a school teacher who eventually rose to not only a state representative, but district attorney and district court judge in Colorado. Wow. After growing up and moving to Denver, Daisy met and married a man by the name of Tom Gallagher in the early 1920s, and the two would shortly welcome a daughter named Helen Ruth Gallagher. Hmm. Shortly after Helen being born, Daisy and Tom would divorce, and Daisy would eventually meet and marry William Graham. Okay. Due to Jack being born in the height of the Great Depression, his family unfortunately would struggle with poverty throughout his entire childhood. Hmm. William was a mining engineer, but due to the economic impact of the Great Depression, he was unable to pursue his career, and the family became under a lot of financial stress. William and Daisy would ultimately separate when Jack was just 18 months old. Oh, he's a little baby. I know. Though they were separated, William was still providing for the family financially as much as he could, but unfortunately, in 1937, he would contract pneumonia and ultimately pass away from the illness. Whoa. This is when Jack was just five years old. Mm. After William died, Daisy would move in with her mother in order for her to work more, while the grandmother watched not only Jack, but Daisy's daughter Helen as well. Within a couple of years, however, Daisy's mother would ultimately pass herself. Oh my god. Leaving Daisy with both children and no time to work. It was during this time, around 1940, that Daisy made the decision to send Jack to an orphanage named the Clayton College for Boys, seeming as though she sent her daughter with her dad mm -hmm. at the same time. This orphanage was named as an orphanage for, quote, poor white male orphans born of reputable parents, which is, like, kind of fucked up. That's but, disgusting. Yeah. But yeah. not kind of fucked up. It is fucked it's up. It's fucked up. <laughs> Now, it seems as though Daisy giving Jack up to the orphanage was, in her mind, for his own well-being. Because, of course, she couldn't provide for him financially. Right. Jack would later recall that he thought his mother did not love him anymore, and that's why she dropped him off at the orphanage. Which, like, makes my heart hurt. However, shortly after giving up Jack, in 1941, Daisy would marry a third time. This time to a wealthy rancher named Earl King. And she went back for Jack, right? <laughs> this new marriage would dramatically change her finances, yet she never chose to pick Jack up from the orphanage Ugh. and bring him to live with her, although she could afford it now. Ugh, that's awful. During the next couple of years, Daisy would have Jack come out to the ranch to spend holidays and vacations with the family, only to be returned back to the orphanage during the school year. I am Jack's complete lack of surprise. <laughs> Jack, wait, Jack's like apostrophe s yeah like from fight club it's from fight club yeah <laughs> when jack was 13 he was taken out of the orphanage and sent to stay a while with some neighbors of his stepfathers not like with them at the house yeah just went with some neighbors <sighs> only to be returned back to the orphanage shortly after jeez this poor kid so in his mind they don't want me either yeah jack was noted as asking around this time why he could not just simply live with his mother what the fuck? Yeah. Why can't I just live here? I, I mean, mean, I'm related to you, and you're also my mother. Despite all of his struggles, Jack was still attending school, but would ultimately drop out of high school after completing the ninth grade. We see this a lot. Mm -hmm. After dropping out of school at age 16, Jack decided that he was going to enlist in the Coast Guard, lying about his age during the application process. Okay. Jack was able to join the Coast Guard, because IDs weren't a thing. <laughs> I mean, they were, <laughs> yeah. I mean? and ended up serving starting in April 1948. Hmm. Less than a year later, however, in January of 1949, Jack would go AWOL for 63 days and was required to go to a court-martial hearing following his return. Oh, shit. Where was he? When asked why he went AWOL, Jack responded by saying that he was tired of having to listen to his higher-ups, and he just wanted to party instead. <laughs> Just want to party, bro. Just want to party. Just want to party. Like party. <laughs> he also did not seem to care about his decision, stating, quote, I don't feel sorry about it, but I'm not happy about it. I don't want a bad conduct discharge. But why apply, though? Why apply to the Coast Guard if you just 
aren't going to pay attention or listen or Well, I guess he thought he was going to, and then he got into the military and he was like, fuck this. Like, yeah. I don't want to be told what to do. It was better than staying at the YMCA. Well, and yeah. And then also like his whole life, I mean, he went to the orphanage, I guess. So he did have like structure, but he's probably like, you're not my fucking parents. You yeah. know, you can't tell me what to do. Kind of like that attitude. Yeah. The only one that can tell me what to do is my mother, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Following the hearing, Jack was sent to a hospital for neurological testing and was later honorably discharged from the military. What? Like how? He went a wall <laughs> for sixty three days. Honorably discharged. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what he said to them. Yeah. According to Jack, he claimed that he was given shock treatments while being evaluated, but these claims were never confirmed. Hmm. On the contrary, records would indicate that Jack was actually immature, displayed poor judgment, and exhibited impulsive behavior. Honorably discharged. Yeah. Hmm. But he's like they gave him shock treatment. They were like, no, he's like, like a delinquent. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, after being discharged from the military, Jack would actually receive his high school diploma after passing entrance, entrance exams at Denver University, and during this time, he would meet fellow student Gloria Elson. Hmm. The two would quickly no! marry. every time. <laughs> every time. The two would quickly marry. The two would marry in 1953 and would quickly have a child together, seeming to have the perfect family life on the outside. Okay. Dennis Raider. Panty Raider. Panty Raider. One year into his marriage, Jack had still not had any contact with his estranged mother since before he dropped out of school. So that was like 16 and this is what, he's 19 or 20 now? So yeah, it's been about five years Mm -hmm. uh, since he's seen his mother. The same year, in 1954, so this is one year later after he gets married, Earl King, Daisy's new husband, accidentally (laughs) accidentally passed away. Whoops. <laughs> My bad. Earl King passed away, leaving his huge inheritance behind and now in Daisy's possession. <gasps> During this time, Daisy and Jack would reconnect, seemingly due to the fact that Earl had passed away and maybe Daisy reached out to Jack to let him know, kind of said like, hey, look, like, I know maybe we, we can rekindle our you know, yeah, relationship. Because now I'm lonely and I have this big house all to myself. Yeah. So Daisy would ultimately purchase a home in the same year that Earl died. I'm not sure what happened to his home. Maybe it got, maybe she sold it and got it something smaller. Might have been a fl- family home or something yeah. or inheritance of some kind for somebody else. Yes. However it went, Daisy would actually invite Jack and his wife along with their child to move in with her. Okay. I wonder if he didn't like Jack and that's why she was like, oh, you can't stay here. Can't sit here. <laughs> can't sit here. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, and I'm not trying to, like, speak ill, but I feel like she might have just felt felt it easier to just leave him in the home. Because her daughter was taken care of. Yeah. Right? And she's like, well, he's fine over there. I don't think she realized, like, how detrimental, like, that was to his upbringing. During this time, Daisy and Jack's relationship was very tumultuous, and the two were known to argue often. Although they were known for constantly arguing... A friend of Daisy's would later say about their relationship at this time, quote, Jack was her favorite. She took his word as law and gave him a lot of things. I suppose Daisy was a little neurotic. So Daisy's clearly putting on this persona outside of the home that her and Jack have this great relationship. And neighbors are like, no, they fought like all the time. Well, I wonder if for her it's like overcompensation. Like I've definitely seen that before in other families where, you know, maybe the mom or the dad had moved away while the child was young, but then they come back into their lives and it's like, anything you want, anything you want because I owe you now because I abandoned you. And now she has all this money. So Daisy would actually become a successful businesswoman and even begin to purchase and run her own restaurant that became very popular. In February of 1955, Jack and his wife, Gloria would welcome their second child to the world. Hmm. Their growing family seemed to be thriving with his mother's business booming and the family dynamic looking promising. Hmm. At least she was working. That's oh, good. absolutely. Yeah. However, Jack's half-sister Helen would later say about this time that Jack had anger issues, a very dark sense of humor, and had enacted violence on numerous occasions on Helen and his wife alike. 
I guess at some point Helen, the half-sister, came back? I'm sure she's, like, visiting. I think she was, like, many years older than him, so Mm -hmm. she probably has her own family at this point. I think she was just visiting. Okay. And remember, she's living in Alaska, I mean, within five years after this, so maybe she wasn't even living in the same state. True. So, (laughs) funny enough, the criminal activity of Jack did not start and stop with this bombing. But in reality, he had a long record of crimes dating back to 1951. Hmm. In early 1951, Jack was employed as a payroll clerk when he was caught stealing a set of blank checks in order to commit fraud. So this was before he was married. Before he was married. Okay. He filled out 42 of the checks for $100 each, then forged the name of the company owner to cash them. Hmm. This act would land him on the local most wanted list. What? (laughs) Yeah. Damn. I mean, I bet that's a lot of fucking money. Stealing nearly $4,500 in the 50s, so I did the conversion rate. It's about 52 grand today. That's a pretty penny. Jack would spend $2,000 of this money to go on the run to Texas. Hmm. Because he's on the most wanted list. He can't be there anymore in Colorado. (laughs) Where'd he go in Texas? I'm actually not sure. I think he was in, like, the Panhandle area. Okay. Because that's, like, closest to Colorado. Sure. Being in Texas less than a year, Jack would ultimately find himself in trouble with the law there as well. On September 11th, 1951, Jack would be caught by police when trying to illegally transport whiskey. Cool. He would be sentenced to 60 days in the county jail before being sent back to Denver to face his forgery charge. Yeah. He was convicted on November 3rd for this charge, but the conviction was suspended and he was placed on probation instead for a total of five years. Don't you love to see it? Don't you love Love to see it, it, folks? Love to see it. He would also pay financial restitution for this crime from 1952 to 1955. Okay. So it's kind of become a theme now that he'll do like whatever he can for financial gain, right? Yeah. Was it Richard Ramirez or was it, I want to say it was Richard Ramirez was kind of like that at the beginning. Yeah, just, like, finding just any like, way to scam people yeah, or steal money. Yeah, scam people or steal money, yeah. And that just, I mean, the, es- the crimes escalated, clearly. But yeah. yeah. Jack would ultimately get a job as a heavy-duty equipment mechanic from January 1953 to December 1954. This is, again, right around the time that he moved in with his mother, his pregnant wife, and their first child. Mm. Of course, the baby has been born. Yeah. Going back to Daisy and Jack arguing very frequently... The most common topic of these fights was over management of the restaurant that Daisy had owned. Jack wanted to be the manager, and I don't think that she wanted him to be the manager mm-hmm. because of their, like, she didn't want to mix, like, business and family. Yeah. And, you know, of course, they didn't really agree on a lot of stuff. So Jack didn't like that, clearly. And shortly after the restaurant was opened, I would say within six months to a year, it was vandalized considerably. But the perpetrator was never caught. In September of 1955, so this is two months before the plane crash, Daisy's restaurant mysteriously caught fire caused by an explosion from a gas line being disconnected. What? The restaurant was completely destroyed in the explosion, but again, no perpetrator of the crime. Or even confirmation that it wasn't an accident. So they really didn't even know that there might have been foul play. The FBI would later note that Jack's truck was also hit by a train around this same time. (laughs) Something they believe was also to try to collect insurance money from. Whoops, just happened to leave my... Yeah. (laughs) Parked it. Accidentally. (laughs) Accidentally (laughs) my... Like lemony snickets, that bitch. Yeah. I don't know. My truck was just in my driveway and all of a sudden this train came out. Yeah, what the fuck? (laughs) We should fix the tracks or something. (laughs) So shortly after this restaurant explosion and truck accident, on November 1st, 1955, Daisy King would board the aircraft that would explode 11 minutes in to the flight. So she was going to Alaska to go see what, Helen? Helen. Okay. Daisy's luggage actually almost didn't make it on the plane at all, or almost missed the plane because it was actually overweight due to the stuff that Jack had added. Wow. The airline wanted to charge Daisy $27.82 for the overweight charged, so she was trying to say, oh, I'll just get some stuff out of it, and Jack was like, no, 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 just pay it. You're going to need everything that you packed. Like, don't leave anything behind. And she goes, okay, and she pays it, and they check it. Jesus. That's fucking evil. Like, you had... Oh, my gosh. No, it's... 
very clear that Jack was the mastermind behind this explosion. <laughs> Becoming obsessed with money and financial gain, Jack had devised a plan that would give him the ultimate payout. His first plan was to burn the restaurant down in order to collect the insurance money. Shortly before the explosion, he was noted as taking out an insurance policy on the restaurant. That was in his name. And he was able to collect it after the restaurant was destroyed, because again, they didn't know it was foul play. Right. This was not enough for Jack, however, and he knew that he could kick it up a notch and gain even more money. After dropping off his mom at the airport security, Jack utilized something that was available in airports at the time. A life insurance policy on his mother. Through the airlines? So, when flying was, like, unreliable, <laughs> because it literally, like, was, was like barely a, happening in yeah, the 50s. It was, like, a step above a hot air balloon. You used to be able to purchase life insurance on the passengers from a vending machine at <gasps> the airport. <laughs> and I, I, I told this what? to mom, and mom goes, oh, yeah, I remember that, because it didn't go away until, like, the 80s. <laughs> yeah. That's bonkers. Yeah. So the benefit was put to rest in the 80s, again, with new technology and stuff, right. but also, like, probably fucking issues like this. Like, <laughs> oh, no, it would be a shame if the plane crashed. Like, I, I think it was that D.B. Cooper documentary that yeah. they were talking about how anybody and everybody could just, like, hop on fucking planes, and, like, plane jacking was a really serious yeah. issue. Because they had, like, no fucking security, just all this shit. Nobody fucking checked the bags. It was essentially just, like, a place where... People that could afford it or, you know, misogynists or whatever can grow up like the stewardesses and, like, can't do anything about it. Yeah. And it's just, it was just lawless. It was just like a zoo. <laughs> it's just a zoo. Not to mention, these life insurance policies could be purchased in these vending machines for, like, 25 cents each. Like, literally. So, it's like, put a quarter in and get a million. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like a slot a machine. Vegas scam or yeah. something. It's a fucking slot machine. Now, Jack's motive for the bombing was to collect $37,500 in life insurance money, which is the equivalent of $416,000 today, on his mom. So he took wow. out that po a policy on his mom. He also took out two additional policies on Daisy while in the airport, totaling $6,250 each, which is about $70,000. And he took these out to make sure that it would go to her sister and to Helen. Okay. Nice fucking guy, yeah, right? Yeah, he's oh, so I'm sweet. just gonna make sure you get some money out of what it. What a nice guy. Stupid ass. Do you think that maybe part of that was because he didn't want them coming after, like, the fortune he was already getting from his mom? I think he might have thought, like, if they get money out of it, maybe they'll be distracted and they won't, like, come from... Yeah, come exactly. from my money. Yeah, yeah, yeah come from right. my, my inheritance. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, because in addition to this money, Jack was also set to be the beneficiary of his mother's home that was totaled at $150,000. Yeah. $1.7 million today. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was shut up money. It was like, it here's was. your 70, here's your 70, shut up. But uh, of course they didn't know. Yeah. Days before the bombing, Jack had gone shopping for what he said was an artistic toolkit. His mom liked to hand make jewelry. Mm -hmm. So he had gone shopping for what he said was a gift for his mother, because it was close to Christmas time. Yeah. It's like needle nose pliers and well, <laughs> red and black wires. Really even, yeah, <laughs> he didn't really even buy any of that Gun shit. Gunpowder. <laughs> On the morning of November 1st, Jack brought the package to the basement where his mother had been packing. The package, that consisted of 25 sticks of dynamite, two primer caps, a timer, and a 6-volt battery, was disguised as a Christmas present. And packed into his mother's suitcase. That's fucking evil. Not only that, but there's, like... That's overkill, almost. Yeah. 25 sticks. This was not Jack's first experience with dynamite, however, as he would later confess to having performed demolition work while in the military. Oh. His sister, Helen, even admitted that he once casually joked about using dynamite to blow off a stuck bolt while they were working on a project. He's like, oh, just... Dynamite what? it, it'll fucking come off. Dynamite it. Dynamite it. Dynamite. Lastly, the truck credit manager of his vehicle that was hit previously had remembered that Jack had once commented on the ease of putting a bomb onto an airplane and blowing it up. Well, it's true. <laughs> well, back then, yeah. Yeah, for sure. it's easy. 
Although there were these seemingly, like, eyebrow-raising comments made, nobody was the wiser when it came to Jack, and they never took any of his comments seriously. Yeah. So, in the afternoon of November 1st, 1955, Jack, his wife, and his two children all drove Daisy to the airport, Jack knowing that the bomb was in the back of the car the whole time. And could possibly fucking detonate with his fucking children in the car. That's if he, so fucked like, up. fucked up any time, like, making this bomb, like, he could have killed all of them. Yeah. His children and his wife. Not even his mom. I mean, that's obviously bad in itself. Trusted Health Products makes a variety of incredible products that you can feel good about. Their oral care, skin care, and nutritional products focus on quality first. Trusted Health Products are GMO and additive-free and are 100% pure ingredients that feed and nourish your body to help you look and feel your best. Click the link in the show notes and receive 10% off your first purchase. Trusted Health Products, products that you can feel good about. Jack dropped his mother and family off at the terminal door, drove to the parking lot, and took her luggage to get checked. Again, this is when they met up with the whole money thing, and then he was like, no, no, no. The FBI worked endlessly in order to narrow down the cause of the crash and to determine if it was an accident or a chilling plot to purposefully explode the plane. They sifted through all of the rubble, ID'd everyone on board, and even interviewed their family members to gain knowledge about them. They were able to reassemble the plane with the pieces that they found and in order to determine where the explosion happened. Yeah. Because, of course, there wouldn't be as n- enough rubble right there. Right. The FBI work on this case is absolutely incredible, and if you Google the case, you can actually find, this is where I got most of my info, on the FBI.gov website, and it Hmm. details every single thing that they did to reach Jack in their investigation. That's cool. And it's a lot more than I would, than I detailed here, so Mm. if you want, like, a really deep dive into this, it's a really good read. And it's, like, a legal document, you Mm. know? So law enforcement discovered that Jack had a criminal record for embezzlement by check forgery and illegal transport of whiskey in Texas. They were also able to uncover that Jack's truck had been totaled under suspicious circumstances, as well as his mother's restaurant being burned to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. On top of all of these discoveries, while looking through the insurance policies taken out on each passenger aboard the aircraft, police noticed that Daisy King was the only passenger with three different insurance policies taken out the same day. Which, the same day wasn't really weird, because that's why they were there at the airport. But still. Perhaps the most damning piece of evidence to Jack being a potential suspect were items that were determined to be on Daisy's person during the explosion. In what detectives determined to be her handbag, Daisy had personal letters, newspaper clippings, and more about Jack Graham's forgery conviction and placement on Denver's Most Wanted list. I think that she was maybe bringing this to, like, share with her daughter, like, what she found out about Jack. Like, he was had, like, mm. a record. Maybe he was, like, wanted. That's the only reason that I can think of that she would have it in her purse. Yeah. Because she didn't, as far as I know, say anything to him that she knew about yeah. his past charges. I think that it was something that would be planted either. I mean, why would he do that? No, I don't think... It, that's what I'm saying. I don't think he even mm. knew that she had that. Again, mm. this is all speculation. I have no idea. But yeah, she had like in her purse, like in her carry-on. That's really interesting. Unless the, she had a sneaking suspicion. Yeah, that's true. That true. That too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The true, true. Detectives, having more than enough circumstantial evidence to question Jack, were told by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to, quote, focus on him. J. Edgar Hoover? Yeah, it's a really cool name, right? Company. J. Edgar Hoover is, like, a very, very famous person. Yeah, I, was, I know. Oh, okay. I was quoting Clue, the movie oh. Clue. Yeah. J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, hello. I thought that sounded familiar, actually. It's Tim Curry. Oh, really? I love him. Your stolen credit card. <laughs> Now? (laughs) Now. Jack was originally interviewed with the company of Helen, his half-sister, on November 10th, 1955. During this interview, Jack relayed detailed information about his mom, dad, and his childhood. He and his sister were both free to go following this interview. On November 11th, the following day, Jack and his wife Gloria willingly spoke to the FBI about Daisy's final days. Gloria stating that she knew what Daisy's luggage looked like, but not what was in it. Hmm. 
Gloria explained that Daisy was very particular about the contents of her luggage, and she would never let anyone else pack for her or even help her pack. Gloria did recall that Jack said he was going to give Daisy a present before she left for the airport, and she believed that it contained a small artistic tool set. She also recalled that she did see Jack take the package down to the basement where Daisy's luggage was, but she did not know if he gave it to Daisy or not after that. Mm -hmm. She didn't press because it didn't seem weird to her. At least one Gloria knows how to communicate with police officers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) However, after the FBI had Jack in their grips, they would question him ruthlessly over the course of the next 12 hours. Now, at this point, they already know that he had tampered with his mother's luggage on the Mm -hmm. day of the explosion because they had narrowed it down to her bag that was the cause of the explosion. Right. And Jack had actually told a neighbor earlier the day of the crash that he was planning on sneaking a Christmas present into his mother's luggage. Dumbass. Like, why would you do that? (laughs) Why would you say that? Dummy. Further interviews went on on November 11th and 12th with relatives and associates of Daisy, but the only one that carried any weight was this neighbor. Not wanting to spook Jack any further, but still wanting to question him, FBI agents would actually invite Jack and his wife Gloria back to the federal building around noon on November 12th with the guys that they needed them to help identify some charred pieces of luggage, as well as to help clear up some details of the case. Hmm. So they were like, we just need your help. When questioned if he had messed with Daisy's luggage on the day of the explosion, Jack simply stated that he had purchased a jewelry-making tool for her and just put that in the bag for her securely before bringing up her luggage. What Jack and the FBI both knew at this point was that there was no jewelry-making tool at all, (laughs) and instead... The 25 sticks of dynamite, a few blasting caps, and a timer set for 90 minutes. Wow. FBI agents were not entirely convinced that Jack did not have anything to do with this explosion to begin with, but the more they questioned him, the more it became apparent that he was most definitely involved, and most likely the mastermind. Yeah. Around 6.30 p.m., FBI agents informed Jack that he was now officially a suspect in the bombing, and that he was both free to go and to call an attorney. They can't arrest him, but they now have him as a suspect, right? Yeah. And I'm sure they want to get everything down to a T. Right. This was actually before the Miranda rights were a thing. Hmm. So that's why they told him he was both free to go and call an attorney, but they didn't, like, read him any rights. Yeah. Now, the Miranda rights, I just had to pepper this in there because I thought it was interesting. They didn't go into effect until 1966. So in 1963, Ernesto Miranda was arrested in Arizona for kidnapping and rape. During his interrogation, he was not informed of his right to remain silent and his right to an attorney. He eventually confessed to the crimes and was convicted, but his case was appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, in which they ultimately ruled that his confession was not admissible because he had not been informed of his rights. Damn. After this ruling, police became required to read a standard set of rights to a suspect before any questioning could take place, a.k.a. the Miranda rights. Cool. Thanks yeah. for thanks for that though, because I didn't know what the origin was. Yeah, I didn't either. And I, I asked Casey last night. I said, "Do you know when the Miranda rights became a thing?" And he was like, "I don't know. Like pretty recently." I was like, "Yeah, it was like the '60s." He's like, "Yeah." <laughs> so instead of leaving around six thirty after finding out that he was a suspect, Jack continued to talk to FBI agents and argue his point that he was innocent. Lol. <laughs> this would continue for the next several hours. And around midnight, Agent James R. Wagoner finally had enough, stating, quote, You've been lying to us all night. We are going to charge you with this crime. Why not make it easy for us? To which Jack stoically replied, quote, Where do you want me to start? Damn! <laughs> oh, I <hate> you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Jack began telling the FBI that he put together a bomb consisting of 25 sticks of commercial dynamite, two blaster caps, a timer with the max capability of 90 minutes, and a small battery. He admitted that he wrapped up the device to look like a Christmas present and placed it in his mom's luggage before driving her to the airport, stating about this, quote, I then wrapped about three or four feet of binding cord around the sack of dynamite to hold the dynamite sticks in place around the caps. The purpose of the two caps was in case one of the caps failed to function and ignite the dynamite. I placed the suitcase in the trunk of my car with another smaller suitcase, which my mother had packed to take with her on the trip. End quote. He had set the timer for 90 minutes immediately before putting it into the bag. He recalled thinking that he had to hurry in order to get his mother on the plane and in flight before the 90 minutes was up. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, that could have gone off in the fucking airport. Right. I mean, he still killed 50 fucking people, but... 
After he dropped his mother off at the terminal, he went to the coffee shop in the airport and had some coffee and donuts. He told the FBI he remembered watching his mother walk toward the plane, saying, quote, I watched her go off for the last time. I felt happier than I ever felt in my life. Oh my gods. Jack admitted to not even giving a second thought about the other 43 people that would be on the plane and ultimately would die from his actions. On top of his matter-of-fact explanation about the events that transpired on that day, perhaps the most shocking thing FBI agents would hear was that Jack's only regret was that the plane had a 10-minute delay, causing it to crash in the beet field rather than the Rocky Mountains. Oh, he wanted them just to not be found. He was bummed because if the plane crashed into the mountains, it would have been much harder to investigate. Yeah. Blah, I just got, like, the chills. When interviewed later by psychiatrists about the amount of people that he put into harm's way for his own gain, Jack said calmly, quote, The number of people to be killed made no difference to me. It could have been a thousand. When their time comes, there's nothing they can do about it. When their time comes, not when you make it not happen. Not when you make it happen. Yeah. He just really fucking hated his mom. He really did. When Jack heard the news about the plane explosion back at home, the same neighbor that had been interviewed recalled Jack turning pale white and uttering the statement, quote, that is it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Shortly after the crash, a representative from United Airlines contacted Jack to let him know that they believed his mother was a victim of this plane crash, to which Jack responded, quote, well, that's the way it goes. That's the way the cookie crumbles. Like, so fucking, like, yeah. monotone, you Just know? completely dissociative. Yeah. During this questioning, Jack would also provide the FBI with detailed reports of where he bought the bomb parts, which were later determined, confirmed by hardware store clerks. On November 14th, 1955, a complaint was filed before a U.S. commissioner at Denver by a special agent charging Jack Gilbert Graham with sabotage. I'll explain why in a second. <laughs> Jack appeared before the commissioner where he was advised of the charges against him and afforded an opportunity to make bond at $100,000. He was unable to make bond and was actually then committed to the custody of the U.S. Marshal in lieu of bond. On November 17, 1955, Jack Gilbert Graham was charged with one count of murder of his mother. Authorities were actually shocked to discover that there was no federal statute on the books at the time that made it a crime to blow up an airplane. Therefore, the murder charge of his mother was the only charge they could place on him at the time of his arrest. Like, they were just, like, they just so happened to be casualties of this other thing. But since but she that's was not a target... A yeah. Yeah. Like, blowing up an airplane is not a crime, so all the people that died on board, like, you didn't murder them. They, they just died in a plane crash. The, they just happened to be on the plane. Yeah. Of course, they changed that afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> it's still illegal. To like, we can't just be doing that, okay, y'all? Yeah. <laughs> can't just be doing that. He would be arraigned in December 1955, to which he entered pleas of innocent and innocent by reason of insanity. Wait, but he... Okay. Go ahead. Shortly after his arrest, Denver radio station KDEN owner Gene Amole and Rocky Mountain News photographer Maury Ingle arranged to sneak a camera into the county jail for an interview of Jack during a reunion with his wife, Gloria. They wanted it on camera, so they snuck it into the jail. Look, hey, I say, it's like 1950s. Yeah. I mean, who could afford cameras? For Seriously, I'm with an interviewer's fuck. Yeah. The TV station. I like how you just, like, sneak that in. Like, now you can fit, like, cameras on the head of a pin. Yeah, but, like, exactly. then it was, like, this big fucking clunky shit. <laughs> exactly. He's like a giant trench coat or Yeah. <laughs> Jack was recorded saying to his wife, quote, I love my mother very much. She meant a lot to me. It's very hard for me to tell exactly how I feel. She left so much of herself behind. When Amolai asked Jack why he signed a confession, he stated that the FBI had threatened to point out inconsistencies in statements made by his wife when she was interviewed by authorities. He stated, quote, I was not about to let them touch her in any way, shape, or form. So now he's trying to say, like... Oh, that's protecting... Oh, I confess, because I was protecting yeah. my wife. I'm protecting people. Although they brought the interview back with them, none of the Denver TV stations would agree to air it, believing that it might spark sympathy for Jack. Hmm. Like, oh, he was just trying to take care of his wife. With Jack's confession on the table, the prosecution believed it would be an open and shut case from the get-go. The FBI, United Airlines, and the DA wanted Jack tried found guilty and executed quickly as a, quote, deterrent to others who might plan copycat murders. Yeah, absolutely. Just, like, 
This is what's going to happen if you fucking do that shit. However, just days after his arrest and this interview, Jack would recant his confession in an interview that appeared in the Rocky Mountain News under the headline, quote, Dynamiter changes his story. Dynamiter. Dynamiter. Like, it's, it's a fucking me, the verb. Yes. <laughs> me, the dynamiter. It's me, the dynamiter. <laughs> I always think that recanting a confession is hilarious. It's like... But you already said it. Yeah. It's like, oh, so now you're not... Okay, now we believe you because you, now you didn't yeah. do it? Okay, cool. Okay, we're going to believe you the second time. Yeah. Not the first time you told us, but the second Silly. time. Jack's change of heart and the amount of evidence piling up against him throughout the months leading up to his trial led to a downward spiral. On February 10th, 1956, Jack was found by guards on the floor of his cell with his socks twisted around his neck and was taken to the state hospital in Pueblo. Oh, wow. It's not clear if he was really suicidal or if this was another attempt to make himself seem insane because he was really trying for the insane defense. Yeah. But he was transferred back to a psychiatric unit at Colorado General Hospital with 24-hour surveillance after this. So he lived. While there, Jack was evaluated by psychiatrists, and during a series of interviews to determine his mental state, doctors concluded that Jack was putting on an act, claiming his, quote, patchy amnesia, intermittent disorientation, and absurd as well as correct answers to arrhythmic problems were all an attempt to make him seem crazy. Hmm. So again, he's playing it up. In conclusion to these interviews, psychiatrists determined that he was indeed fit to stand trial. Jack would drop his insanity plea on February 24th, 1956, and his trial would begin on April 16th, 1956. This trial would actually become the first ever criminal trial to be televised in America. Whoa. (laughs) That's interesting. So the judge actually had a remote in which they could use to turn the cameras, like, on and off as necessary in case, obviously, like, content warning and stuff. Mm -hmm. And only one person opted out of being recorded on camera. Jack. What? So, like, they asked, of course, everyone, yeah. are you comfortable being filmed? And he was like, no, I'm not comfortable being filmed. Not me. Not Thank me. You. No, I don't want to be on camera. Thank you. <laughs> Stupid. Don't <laughs> be on camera. Thank you. Thank you. The trial also set an all-time record for the number of jurors examined for a Colorado trial, with 231 examined for bias. Wow. Over a 15-day trial, witnesses testified to Jack's purchase of dynamite and other bomb-making materials, and testified as character witnesses for the prosecution. Jack refused to testify on his own behalf. Usually they're, like, jumping at the chance, yeah, right, when we it. do cases. Yeah, they love it. Or sometimes they're their own defense attorneys. True. <laughs> Bundy. At one point during the trial, the judge and jury were even brought to the massive hangar that the airplane had been reconstructed at to show them that the explosion could not have been accidental. Ooh, that's interesting. On May 5th, after hearing 80 witnesses and examining 174 pieces of evidence, the jury was left to render their verdict. In just over an hour, 69 minutes to be exact, the jury would find Jack Gilbert Graham guilty with a recommendation of the death penalty. Whoa. Though his attorneys advised against it, Jack waived his right to all of his appeals. And on May 15th, 1956, he was sent to Colorado's death row in Canyon City. He didn't want an appeal. He was like, he was just like, no, I'm fine. Jack adapted to life on death row relatively well and was actually pleased to have a larger cell than he had in Denver. He's like, this is cozy. (laughs) This is really nice. This is so nice. Other place sucked. Yeah. (laughs) Remember when we lived there? That place sucked. (laughs) (laughs) While in prison, he never expressed any sort of remorse for his crimes and he kept to himself for the most part. On October 7th, 1856, 1856. Whoa. <laughs> it's an empire. I was like, are we going to great-grandpa now? <laughs> October 7th, 1956, a fellow inmate tried to push... A fellow inmate... <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to keep going with that. <laughs> I'm a child. I'm a child. <laughs> I was gonna keep going, but I said puss. <laughs> ah, okay. This is actually kind of fucked up. Okay. A fellow inmate tried to push religious insight on Jack while talking to him, to which Jack responded, quote, What do I need with that stuff where I'm going? It won't do me any good in hell. Whoa. 
Yikes. Right up until the end of his life, Jack denied killing his mother, although he did confess to making the bomb. He's like, I made the bomb, and I put it in her bag, but, but like, I didn't kill, her. didn't kill her. It's not my fault. It was an accident. It's, it was a Christmas present. It was a Christmas <laughs> present. It's not my fault that she died on the plane. It's not that my fault the timer only it. went up to 90 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jack did not make any decisions about his final meal, although the prison did provide him with steak, fried potatoes, tossed salad, fruit, and ice cream. Oh. Jack rebelled by only consuming the ice cream and leaving the rest of the food. What a child. He's like, I just want ice cream. (laughs) That's awful. That is bad, sorry. In one of his last interviews, Jack jokingly invited a Denver Post reporter who had covered his trial to sit on his lap during his execution as one of his last requests. Come take this sit on Papa's lap. Come sit on my lap for my execution. He chose the gas chamber, by the way. Oh. You you could still choose. Yeah, you get to choose. I don't know, you could choose. Yeah. Today, they still make you, they still let you choose today. Really? Mm-hmm. On January 11th, 1957, Jack was led to the Colorado State Penitentiary's gas chamber, where guards removed all of his clothing, leaving only his underwear. Prison officials then strapped him to a chair and covered his eyes with a mask. Warden Harry Tinsley was noted as saying, quote, God bless, to Jack, who replied, quote, thank you. Jack Gilbert Graham... Breathed in poison gas for 11 minutes. 11 minutes? Until he died. Ironic, because that's how long the flight was in the air before the bomb exploded. (gasps) What? I'm gonna throw this fucking table. What? Wow. (laughs) I didn't even get the heaps. I got, like, a wave of, like, hot. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that wild? Ironically, as well, Jack was able to turn his own death into insurance money for his wife and children. Cute. So he took out an insurance policy on himself for his wife and children. When he passed, he actually left them, their, them his estate as well and inherited all that money. All Daisy stuff, though. Yeah, exactly. And he was never diagnosed with any mental illness. Wow. That's the wild story. Clearly personality disorder. Oh, yeah. I... The- what do you think? Antisocial. Antisocial? Yeah. I mean, with the amount of, but then again, wife and two kids, although he did, he was noted as potentially physically or verbally abusing his wife, being able to maintain a relationship at all is not a symptom. really different yeah. for antisocial personality disorder. It also reminded me a lot of HH, too. The fact that he would just go around scamming people, seemingly, like, I mean, using people's loved ones to gain money from, yeah. you know, hospitals or whatever. And, I mean, he, he probably killed multiple people and then sold their bodies to hospitals. And, yeah, just not having any kind of empathy or sympathy for anyone and just scamming people. I That's mean, definitely a symptom of antisocial personality yeah. is, like, the la- the complete lack of empathy and, like, the lack of care. Like, that's why, he, like, he didn't even use his appeals. Yeah. He didn't care to even try. He's, like, he doesn't try to find God. He's, like, what is that fucking gonna do me any good? Like, didn't where I'm going, you know? matter that he was also gonna kill 40-plus people? Oh, like, yeah. He said it could have been a thousand people. I still would have done it. Like, that kind of mindset. Wow. Yeah, definitely one that I saw, though, and I was like, I have to do this case. Like, very this thing interesting. is wild. And I had never heard anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I haven't... I, there, there's there been... There was, like, one well-known case of it happening before him, which they kind of think he might have gotten inspiration from. And then there was, like, four after him. But, yeah. like, other than that, there's only really been, like, a couple. And especially now, like, it's virtually impossible to do that now right with how much security there is but yeah that's incredible and i don't want to victim blame at all i don't think that i mean of course daisy didn't deserve to die nobody on that plane deserved to die i don't agree with her leaving him in the orphanage when she came into money though because if her claims were true that she really couldn't afford to feed him that makes a little bit more sense but then when she finds the wealth and has the money like not taking him out yeah it kind of seemed to me like she didn't really want to be a mom. Yeah. That sounds bad, but... And, you know, it could have been... I guess it could have been worse, but he de- definitely not an excuse at all to do what he did. Even the even the restaurant thing is inexcusable, you know? Any well, little he, thing. He was born in the 30s, right? And I think that it was very common for people to give up their children because of yeah. the Great Depression and yeah. things like that. So it might just have been a cultural... Like a... Just a difference of the times. Yeah, you know? definitely. And but, well, the yeah. the fact that he was raised in such poverty and in the depression, it kind of 
it makes me think that's probably why he was so infatuated with money. Yeah. Because he never had it mm-hmm. growing up, you know? And he just didn't want... He didn't handle authority well because... Yeah. Usually, well, because he never had it really. But I was gonna say, in some cases like this, though, like a lot of these people join the military and they thrive on the structure, mm-hmm. you know, like the routine. But he didn't. It was yeah. like the opposite. Because I'm not gonna be told what to fucking do. Like his dad died before he even remembered who he was. You know, he didn't have that any kind of good parental figure in his life. And I don't want to say Daisy wasn't a good mom. Because she was. I think she did what she had to do under the circumstances. And you had even mentioned when he did finally go to prison that he kind of just fell into a routine and then just, you know, he never had structure, like you said. Yeah, and I don't think that the prison... I don't think that the structure or routine of prison... I don't think he thrived on that. I just think he just gave up. Like, Mm -hmm. he didn't fucking give a shit anymore. He's like, okay. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm here for the rest of my life. Like, I'm not going to worry... Like, the same thing with the religious thing. I'm not going to worry about getting religious. I'm not going to worry about having a last meal. What does it fucking matter? Like, what does any of it matter, you know? Mm. And I think that's how he kind of felt in his life, too. Like, I'll go AWOL in the military. What does it fucking matter? That's I'll true. kill a thousand people. What does it matter? Like, I don't fucking care. Like, I think, honestly, like, it might have been, like, a I want to die anyway kind of feeling, you yeah. know? And it's really unfortunate. Wow. I know. I feel, like, so bad for him, like, as a kid. But, again, can't excuse the, the behavior that the adult made. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, thank you guys for sticking with us. Yeah, great case. Yeah. Definitely a, a, a trip. Yeah, thanks. We will be back on Monday. I'm going out of town, but that's why we're recording these early so that I can. <laughs> yeah. so I will actually be out of town when you guys hear this. So, and uh, we'll be back on Monday with another mental breaky. We always try to allow this to be accessible for most people, um, and I think that's what a lot of people enjoy about our podcast is that we're not very graphic. However, all you savages out there, everybody wants the uh, everybody wants the nitty gritty details. So I think yeah. we're going to do some cases that we have kind of taken off of our list for the time being just because of the content itself. And some of them don't fit the bill. Yeah. Like the toy box killer. You know, I forgot to mention to Frankie that I personally wasn't going to cover that on the regular streaming podcast because he was never convicted of any murders. Mm -hmm. However, I'm happy to cover it for a Patreon bonus episode. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we could, and that'll be kind of a way for us to get like outside of our theme a little bit. Right. And and have extra episodes. All right, sounds good. Well, we will talk to y'all later. Get your tickets. Let us know if you're going to see us in August. Super excited about that. For sure. And we will see you guys on Monday. Yeah. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. You don't need real ink to make an impact. Let the power of temporary tattoos tell your story. Temporary Tattoos specializes in a wide range of temporary body art, including custom tattoos, with the option to add unique effects like metallic, glitter, glow-in-the-dark, and so much more. Temporary tattoos are easy to apply and last up to five days. When you're ready for your new look, simply remove your fake tattoo using their lemon-scented removing wipes, rinse, and repeat. Temporary tattoo, experiment with a new look without the commitment. Use the link in the show notes below for 10% off stock tattoos and bring your new look to life.